0: Have you ever thought about the butterfly effect? I'm not talking about the 2004 movie starring Ashton Kutcher and Amy Smart, but rather the concept of a butterfly effect, that a minor change in circumstances can cause a large change in outcome. The concept is imagined with a butterfly flapping its wings and causing a typhoon. An example can be noted with Alexander Fleming, He left his lab for a month, and then when he came back, he found mold growing in a petri dish. And for some reason, he decided to keep it rather than throw it out. That mold was penicillium, which produces penicillin, one of the most important drugs ever discovered. If he just thrown out the contaminated culture, who knows where we would be in terms of medicine? So let's bring this concept of a butterfly effect to a local level, the Milwaukee Film Festival. What happened before the start of this beloved gem? And is it a stretch to say that if events didn't align the way that they did, we would never have this annual festival? This is uniquely Milwaukee. It's everything you love about community stories, but more in depth. Giving the stories the time and attention they deserve. Changing perspective one episode at a time. I'm your host, Saddam Fatayed, and this is Uniquely Milwaukee, stories that stick with you. For TV and film, 2007 was an impactful year. Hollywood was dealing with a writer's strike that lasted for 100 days. The writer's strike began with the negotiation of Writer's Guide of America's latest contract with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers which represents over 300 production companies. Negotiations stalled after WGA members demanded a share of the revenues generated by movies, TV shows, and other works distributed on the Internet. Think about it this way. Before this deal, writers made $0 if their shows or movies were viewed on the Internet or mobile devices. This strike was big, and film production was thrown into chaos. Here's what Jack Black had to say.
1: I guess I won't be going on talk shows to promote movies because all the talk shows have writers on them, pretty much. Um, and uh, that's in the short term. In the long term, yeah, can't, can't make movies in, until, uh, until the strike is lifted, really. I mean, you can, you can make some old scripts that have been laying around, but who wants to do that? You want a, a script fresh off the griddle, you know what I mean? You don't want... And there's probably going to be a lot of that in the coming months. Rereading old stale ones. Trying to find some gold there.
0: Now that's happening nationally, and you're probably asking, Salam, what does this have to do with Milwaukee? This is a Milwaukee podcast, and I'm, I'm getting there. So in this sliver of time between film productions being shut down or delayed, and then on the other side, the impending 2008 financial crisis, the Milwaukee Film Festival launched. Well, sort of. I spoke with Jonathan Jackson, CEO of Milwaukee Film, and someone who has been with the organization since its inception to learn about Milwaukee Film's origin story. So, John, how did Milwaukee's film scene look like before Milwaukee Film?
1: The, you know, founding of Milwaukee Film was not out of nowhere in 2008. Uh, I look at two major pieces uh, that led to our founding. One is that since the 70s, uh, at University of Wisconsin Milwaukee um, in the Peck School of the Arts, there was the UWM Film Department, which uh, is internationally known. It's considered Hollywood Reporter, Variety, one of the top 25 film schools mm. in the world. Uh, originally, very much had a dedicated focus to more avant-garde filmmaking. Um, now it encompasses documentary, traditional, independent, fiction filmmaking, and all types. Of filmmaking. But to understand the vibrancy uh, of Milwaukee's creative film community, you really have to understand the story of that program. Um, That's actually personally what brought me to Milwaukee. I moved here sight unseen uh, in 1998 to attend that acclaimed Mm -hmm. film program from out of state had never stepped foot inside (laughs) of Milwaukee prior to that day. Where
0: were
2: you from before?
1: Originally Cleveland, Ohio. um, So Midwesterner, but I had spent some time in both North Carolina and Florida before deciding to move here uh, for that incredible film school. So that film department is a key piece of the story. Another personal side of the story, and, and this really relates to the growth of the Milwaukee Film Festival, what we're here today talking about over the years. But the Oriental Theater is another piece of that story, this this historical landmark in Milwaukee that's been there since 1927. And the unique nature of having a historic theater uh, with the opulence that it does have but also simply the seat count of 1,000 seats mm-hmm. to be able to do major screenings and events – that were always became such a driver for the film festival fun fact my first night in milwaukee i went to a movie there uh it was darren aronofsky's pie i 13 personal note when i was a little kid my mother told me not to stare into the sun and i personally had I never been I've in seen. a movie palace before or seen something like that and so just a couple of weeks later i'd decided to work there and was in the concession stand and uh, operating the box office and cleaning the theater. And that was my first job in Milwaukee.
0: That is so insane that you're so personally connected to this. Since your first night in the city, gosh, I can't even like think about what I did when I first came back here when I lived overseas. And honestly, it's nothing to do with my career. It was obvious to say that Milwaukee film was bound to happen. All the signs were leading up to it. But in 2002, there was Milwaukee International Film Festival, and after only five years, the International Film Festival had to shut down. John said the demise of the festival was the last key component in creating Milwaukee film. One of the things that was missing was the connection to Milwaukee and getting people to care about it and backing it with funds.
1: I had a deep connection to it as the first employee uh, straight out of college who worked there. And basically with that organization, we proved the importance of what a film festival can be for Milwaukee and in this community. Um, There were some challenges to the operation to it, the nonprofit structure. And one of the great stories of the success of Milwaukee Film is, is civic leadership.
0: So it's 2008. Milwaukee Film just launched and they hosted a Milwaukee show. Within the film crowd, there was a lot of buzz. There were about 70 local submissions, but the show only showcased 10 local filmmakers. This was one of the first steps to champion local filmmaking, changing the film scene from underground and bringing it to the surface. That successful night gave the needed boost to create the Milwaukee Film Festival that we know of today, but there was still some fear.
1: I think, had we had started six months or a year later, it's possible this organization wasn't founded
0: What he's referencing is the 2008 financial crisis. The crisis rapidly spread into a global economic shock, resulting in several bank failures. Economies worldwide slowed during this period since credit tightened and international trade declined. Housing markets suffered and unemployment soared, resulting in evictions and foreclosures. Several businesses failed. So, needless to say, there was a lot on the line and a ton of pressure. So, 2008 happened. It was a successful night with the Milwaukee show. A year later, the first Milwaukee Film Festival happened. Walk me through that night, the opening night. What was the movie? What was the atmosphere? I want to know all the details.
1: I'll never forget it, and and it was such an awesome film. And we opened with a documentary film called Racing Dreams. you
0: sweating. And your heart's just beating really, really fast. And I just feel like I'm going to throw up.
1: (laughs) But it's so great. And this is by an acclaimed documentary documentary filmmaker, Marshall Curry. He came to the festival as well as the subjects of this documentary. And so the film was about a world I didn't know existed before this film was made, but it's like a precursor to driving NASCAR or driving full scale mm-hmm. adult cars, but it's kids, young teenagers, or even younger, driving high powered, super fast go karts in competitive racing. Um, and the film profiled four of these racers. They all came and they all had dreams of being like, you know, a top nascar or even formula one driver one day but it was an incredibly intimate look at at these youth their participation in this sport some of the risks they take by driving these cars the way they do and it was such a special moment because here we had this acclaimed filmmaker here who was so great with our audiences but we also had you know these four drivers who were celebrities after people saw the movie and it was so fun having them like at the opening night party And around town. Opening the festival with Racing Dreams was was a true delight.
0: Was it a full house that night? Uh,
1: Yep, it was sold out at the Oriental Theater.
0: I love that. So, in these 10 plus years, do you recall a moving moment?
1: You know, one moment that was a signature experience for me in 2013, and that was uh, George Tillman's film, The Inevitable Defeat of Mr. and Pete Insufficient funds.
2: Excuse me, about the car think i'll give it to its rightful owner but it's my mom's yo leave before i call the police we can't tell anybody we're on our own that's my mom's friend he's not a friend you know
1: Uh, and this is a extremely well made feature fiction film from milwaukee's own george tillman jr and um that was the first time that i personally saw us Do a sold-out showing that had a truly diverse crowd in the house. Mm. And to see that main house of the Oriental Theater with a thousand people and to see such incredible diversity in there together watching this movie and celebrating it and celebrating a a favorite son of Milwaukee, that's when the light bulb went on in my head and it helped embolden us to pursue – you know, much more diversity in both the content we put on screen in the relationships we have in the community and in the very literal staff of Milwaukee Film. I had been talking for several years prior to that with Dr. Dante McFadden about who had been always participating in our screening process. And we were trying to figure out how to, you know, Build the diversity of Milwaukee Films offering and its audience. And it was that moment that told me, you know, we were ready and we could do this and gave us the energy to then the next year launch the Black Lens program for the first time.
0: So Dante, I spoke with John and he mentioned one of his beloved memories was in 2013 and essentially the catalyst that created Black Lens. Do you remember that night?
2: I do. So, the film was the inevitable defeat of Mr. and Pete. It was directed by George Tillman Jr., who's a Milwaukee native. He's a graduate of Marshall High School and Columbia College. This was year five of the Milwaukee Film Festival. And because this was a milestone year for the festival, it was only fitting that a Milwaukee filmmaker or a filmmaker who was born in Milwaukee, mm. would be honored. And this co- the festival coincided with Tillman's release of this film, which he directed, and it was written by another person whose upbringing was spent in Milwaukee, Michael Starberry. And there was a lot of uh, work that was put into trying to attract a diverse audience, particularly a lot of black dignitaries. So there were some receptions, to honor the film, to honor George Tillman, to welcome him and his wife, uh, Marcia Tillman. And Jonathan Jackson was quite taken by the uh, reception and the response, and as well as just the way George Tillman Jr. received how people were greeting him and welcoming him throughout the festival. And the film... The inevitable defeat of Mr. and Pete was shown that evening he was in town. And it got an uproarious applause and it ended up winning the Audience Award Mm. that year. And so that became the catalyst for Jonathan to want to create Black Lens, to dedicate a program within the festival to black filmmakers. And the distinction between other programs in film festivals or even festivals devoted to black themed films or films with predominantly black cast is that the focus was the person behind the camera who was telling the story and so he reached out to me in early February 2014 presenting this idea
0: You know, there's so many people that can say, why have a separate category? So what is the sole purpose of Black Lens?
2: The sole purpose of Black Lens is to showcase films by Black storytellers throughout North America that convey the multifaceted capacities of what it means to be a Black person in North America. I am one and I say this more so as Dante McFadden than as a programmer for black right. lens, even though this is I consider this very much a part of my programming philosophy there's no more there's there's not one way to be black
0: mm-hmm.
2: there's not one way to be black because we you know we can all face the same thing and have different responses to it. We all have different family lineages that inform the way we respond to certain situations, the way that inspires us to create the kind of lives that we want to live. And there's, um, there's a lot of struggle that black people face, but there's a lot of joy that we embody. There's a lot of positive experiences that we share, and there's negative experience that we face that informs the kind of life that we want to live to make sure no one else experiences the pain that we once faced. Mm -hmm. We want to create the world that was not created for us.
0: Yeah, I I truly get the idea of having films that have a positive or even like a real experience. I'm thinking back to this Arab film festival called Mizna in Minnesota. I saw this short film called Tallahassee and it was centered around uh, the main character's grandma's 90th birthday. And Mira, the main actress, just left a psychiatric facility but her family was like lying and said that she was in Florida on vacation. So she had to like deal with keeping up with this lie, but staying true to herself. And, you know, it was like heartfelt, but also had really charming moments. And I don't know, like it, it, when you when you have a story told by someone's own perspective or own culture, like it really shows the difference when it's not. A stereotype, you know. It's not someone oppressed. It's not a terrorist. Um, So I I remember watching that and being like, "Oh, I really want more of this. This is what this is what I need." But what's a representation of cinema that brought you joy?
2: The examples of representation that brought me joy were seeing black experience on screen that I hadn't seen before. Mm. So my PhD is in English with an emphasis in film studies. From UW Milwaukee, and I got all my degrees there. I got my undergraduate degree in film production and film studies, and then I went on to get my master's in English um, with an emphasis in film studies, and then continued on the, uh, the doctoral degree route. And what really engaged me in my study of film was, Learning about this collective of black film students who went to UCLA for film school. Uh, They were loosely known as the L.A. Rebellion or the Los Angeles School of Black Filmmakers. So seeing the work by filmmakers like Charles Burnett, Holly Garima, Julie Dash, Billy Woodbury, just to name a few, really excited me because they were telling stories of people... I've come across throughout my life, but it wasn't being shown in the same way as you would see in a commercial cinema Mm. or like what you would see on TV. You know, you could see there was a certain kind of craft they put into the way they documented those stories and the way they centralized those characters.
0: You know, I did have a question, you know, having a program dedicated to Storytelling and uh, dedicating space for black filmmakers. Have you thought about what that means to have a program like this in a city that's incredibly
2: segregated? All the time. I think it's vital to have a program like Black Lens. And I appreciate that you brought up this question because I think the existence of a program like Black Lens, it's it's quite a conundrum. You get responses from various perspectives. There's the perspective that really appreciates that Milwaukee Film has a program dedicated to showcasing the work of black filmmakers, whether they're emerging filmmakers or veteran filmmakers. They're just happy that someone is giving black storytellers attention and a platform that's well-deserving. There are others who think that a program like Black Lens is further exacerbating Mm. the segregation in that, you know, arguments that I've heard over the years with that, well, the perception of Black Lens is that we're just creating a program of films that it's just going to be Black audiences there. And if... Someone who's black walks into the theater and just sees all black people; they're gonna turn away, and it's not about that. Interesting,
0: uh, actually. I just want to say cause I, the way that I would think about like the criticism could be like it's like a place for, like for digestible for white people.
2: Yeah, yeah. Instead
0: of the opposite, so it's interesting that you brought up yeah, that point.
2: Yeah. So it's paradoxical the presence of a program like Black Lens in that you know some people think that. You know, we're you know creating this silo for black filmmakers Mm -hmm. as opposed to just showcasing the work of black filmmakers throughout all of the festival. And my pushback on that is I actually have a couple responses. One, there are black filmmakers who appreciate a platform like this, Mm -hmm. and so that's why we keep it going. Two Granted, you would love to live in a world where you could showcase work by black filmmakers and not have to call it Black Lens. However, if you don't bring attention to the fact that there are emerging black cinematic storytellers, what's a better way to do that? Mm -hmm. And before there was Black Lens, you know, there were, um, you know, some people didn't even know that Milwaukee Film was showcasing the work of black filmmakers.
0: The film festival is back in person this year, and it's neat to think about that if John didn't come to UWM for school and spend his first night in Milwaukee at the Oriental Theater, then maybe this festival wouldn't have happened. Or if they decided to launch a few months later. All these seemingly small decisions played a role in Milwaukee Film's history, and that matters the 2022 milwaukee film festival starts on april 21st through may 5th i am so beyond excited the first time i was introduced to the milwaukee film festival i was in a film class in high school which was honestly the start of my love for movies and just that form of storytelling and that medium. And I just remember walking into the Oriental and I think I was like wearing sweatpants or something because I was like, oh, we're going to be watching a movie and I want to be like, you know, comfortable and such. And uh, big mistake because it's a palace and (laughs) I just felt like I was so out of place. Um, I was like, I need to wear a ball gown to this. And it's like seeing the opera, Um, but, it just, it's such a great opportunity to see films from all around the world, see films from Milwaukee, just really dive into different types of perspectives. And I mean, that's what I'm all about, truly. Um, I, I love seeing the brochure and highlighting all the films I want to see. My top choices this year is A Distant Place, Boycott, Cosa Brava, Lebanon, Daughters of a Lost Bird, and Black Lens Shorts, Black Love Through a Black Lens. Who knows, maybe I'll see you there and we'll talk about the movie that we just saw or maybe even give each other recommendations. I'm really looking forward to it. But that's it for this episode. I'm your host, Ed. Thank you to Nate Imig, our executive producer, Kenny Perez, our audio engineer. Thank you to our marketing team, led by Sarah Lahr. Graphics and our wonderful logo is made by Aaron Vagata. Our community engagement manager is Maddie Reardon. And Dan Reiner handles our social media. And a big thank you to our members for making Uniquely Milwaukee possible. You can find Uniquely Milwaukee anywhere that has podcasts, including Spotify. And Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. We're dropping a new episode every Monday. So we look forward to seeing you next week. From 889, this is Salam Fathayir.